Welcome to The Way of Christ, a path for spiritual growth presented by Church of the Incarnation in Dallas, Texas. Each week, we will explore central topics of the Christian faith and practice, emphasizing what it means to be a member of a community committed to spiritual growth in Christ. Our focus for season one is mapping the Christian faith, and episode two is titled, How Do We Get There? Part One, Jesus as the Way. This discussion is led by Matt Rossi and was originally recorded on September 17th, 2023. So the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this time together this morning, for time to study and to think deeply about your son, Jesus Christ, and about where we're going as a church, where we're going as Christians. Bless us this morning as we think uh, and worship together. Um, Be with us. Give me clarity of of thought and speech uh, that I would communicate truthfully and rightly um, the glory and the beauty of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for being here this morning. This is our second week of mapping the Christian faith, which is our fall formation course. We had our kickoff last week. Dr. Beely taught on Sunday and talked a little bit about the Trinity, about our life in God, and about where we're going as Christians. And then we had a wonderful gathering on Wednesday night. If you weren't able to make it on Wednesday night, I would just really recommend it to you. We have a parish-wide dinner that starts at 6 p.m. For anyone who's interested, you don't even have to RSVP, just show up. We will have food for you, bring a friend. And then we will have discussion kind of off the back of the topic that we're talking about this morning, specifically around scripture. So we had a wonderful small group discussion last week. We're gonna continue that this week. And if you're here this morning, or you're, you know people who are not able to make it this morning, this talk will be recorded and posted on our podcast page which you can find more details about on the website. All right, without further ado, hopefully everyone has one of these handouts. It should say week two. It looks similar to last week, but it should say week two, Jesus as the way at the top. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about Jesus and how Jesus relates to where we're going as a church, where we're going as God's people, where we're going as individual Christians. So we return to last week briefly as I mentioned, Dr. Beely started at the end. We started uh, with where we're going to life in God. And we talked a little bit about the Trinity. The big question last week was, how do we, where are we going? This week's question is, how do we get there? So if we're going to life in God, if we're going to a future that God has planned for us, the new Jerusalem, heaven, seeing God face to face, How is it that we arrive at that destination? Well, I don't know about you all, but for me, I know I experience all kinds of obstacles in my life when I think about my life with God. I think Mark asked a question. Mark Martinson asked a great question last week. You make it sound so easy, I think he said, getting to God or going to God, but actually our day-to-day lives are much more difficult than we often make it sound when we teach about the Christian life. And that is the case I know for me. There are all sorts of things preventing me from spending time in prayer, preventing me from keeping my thoughts pure and my heart set on God. There are all kinds of distractions, all kinds of obstacles, all kinds of frustrations that I find in my day-to-day Christian life. And one simple way, a Christian shorthand for these obstacles, these frustrations, is sin. 
sin both from within us and without, the power of the devil, the power of evil, and our own evil and twisted desires, our own disordered loves, those things, this sin, this body of sin keeps us from getting to where we're going. It keeps us from going to life in and with God. And so we need something to get around and through these obstacles and we can't do it on our own. And this is part of why we keep bringing up this word frustration. The more we try to get where we're going on our own, the more we find that our attempts to get to God are frustrated by our own sinful desires and by things that are thrown in our paths. And so what we need is we need God from God's side to come to us. We need God to overcome the obstacles that are in our way that prevent us from getting to him. And so we're talking about Jesus this morning. Jesus, simply put, is the way that God makes for us to get through the obstacles in our lives. Jesus comes to us. We don't have to go to God or get to God by our own power, but Jesus comes to us from God to bring us to God. So this first verse at the top of your handout, Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So if we're going to God, Jesus is how we get there. I love this quote from Augustine from uh, On Christian Teaching, book one. He talks about the journey to God as a kind of voyage home. And that because we couldn't get to God, God had to send wisdom, this is Jesus, to us. And that wisdom had to adapt herself even to our infirmity, to our humanity, in order to make a way for us to get to God. And so you'll see, as we talk this morning, that this triune life that we talked about last week, one of the Trinity, the Son of God, comes to us to bring us into the life of God. And that one who comes to us is Jesus. So when we think about Christian faith and the Christian confession, the central confession of the Christian faith revolves around this person, Jesus, because of how important Jesus is to our daily lives. So our confession about Jesus Christ is the center of our faith. Jesus is our access to God, both in terms of knowledge, but also in terms of salvation, right? Jesus reveals who God is to us, but Jesus also makes a way for us to get to God. We see this in Hebrews 1.3 and in all sorts of other scriptures, that Jesus is the exact reflection and imprint of God's image, the image of the invisible God. When we look at Jesus, we see who God is most clearly. Another way of putting this is the earliest Christian confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. We see this, in, for example, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's one God the Father and one Lord, Jesus Christ. We see it in all other sorts of places throughout the New Testament as well, in Philippians 2, in 1 Corinthians 12, 
1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we can't even make the confession that Jesus is Lord without the power of the Holy Spirit. There's something so central about this confession of who Jesus is. And so we talked about this actually a couple weeks ago in our scripture from Matthew 16, Peter's confession. Jesus asks this question to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And this question as Dr. Beely preached, is the central question of the Christian life. This is the most important question you can ever be asked. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Well, how do we go about answering this question? The primary way we do it is by looking at the scriptural Narrative, looking at the scriptures and seeing who do the scriptures proclaim Jesus to be? Who do the scriptures say that Jesus is? Well, if you read the New Testament, if you read the Gospels, you'll pretty quickly come away with two main ideas about Jesus. In the first place, you'll see that Jesus is and does what God is and does. Jesus is and does what God is and does. Jesus forgives sins. He heals people by his own power. He receives worship from people. These are things that usually only God does. But also on every page of the gospels, you'll see that Jesus is and does what humans are and do. He gets hungry. He gets tired. He's born He has a family. He walks around. He teaches. He interacts. He weeps. He has friends. All of these things we typically associate with humanity. And most centrally, perhaps, he dies. So the church's historic teaching about Jesus has been principally concerned with reconciling these two truths about Jesus that we see on every page of the Gospels. How do we hold together the fact that Jesus is and does what God is and does, and yet Jesus is and does what humans are and do? Let's start with the first one in a little more detail. Jesus is and does what God is and does. Well, first and foremost, we see throughout the scriptures, perhaps uh, in the most beautiful form in chapter one of John's Gospel, That Jesus is the eternal son, the word of God, who took on our humanity, who took on our human flesh, and who came to live among us. Jesus, we see in John 1, is the father's equal. He was with God. He was God before all creation. And now he is God who has come among us. From his fullness, we see in verse 16 of John 1, we've received grace upon grace Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. It is the only Son, himself God, who is close to the Father's heart. All right, is this, ooh, that's hot. All right. (laughs) 
These are the obstacles that stand in our way uh, as we try to talk about the truth of the gospel. This is, we'll leave that there. All right. So Jesus is and does what God is and does. We see this throughout the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's popular, I think, more so in recent years, recent decades, to emphasize or be really fixated on the full humanity of Jesus. And we'll talk about this. This is really important that Jesus is fully human. And we, we love and find so much comfort in talking about that Jesus has all of the characteristics of true human life, that he suffers, that he knows what it means to be human. But this first portion of this confession, that Jesus is and does what God is and does, that Jesus is God, is the heart of the Christian confession. It's what sets apart Jesus from all other prophets, all other teachers, all other religious figures in the history of all religions. And what's amazing is that God, in Jesus, God comes to us and comes for us. You see, as we talk about obstacles, we need a mediator. We need someone to come to us from God's side, from the divine side of the divide between humanity and divinity. We need God to cross that line and come to us to make a way to him. And this is why the church has guarded so jealously, for example, in the Nicene Creed, the divine identity of Jesus, why it's so important for us to maintain the truth of Jesus's divine identity. Because without Jesus's divine identity, without Jesus being God, we can't actually get where we're going. We can't actually get to God's life. We'll say more about this in a minute. The second part then of this two-part narrative in the Gospels is that Jesus is and does what humans are and do. Jesus is born, he hungers, he grows, he learns, he thirsts, he tires, and ultimately he dies. And these are not things we typically associate with God. And this is the true scandal of the incarnation, actually, is holding these two truths together. That when we see Jesus being born, growing, learning, weeping, hungering, thirsting, that we're actually seeing God in the flesh doing these things. This is what's scandalous that God, the almighty, the immovable creator of all, above whom no one stands, would submit himself to the travails and the frustrations and the difficulties of human life. And that God would do that for us, for our salvation. Jesus, it should be said further, does all of this not only as a sort of generic human being that could have been born at any time or any place, but he does this as an Israelite, as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of Israel's promised hope for a king, a divine king who would rescue them. So Jesus is the Messiah, the true Jewish king, the true king on the, on the throne of David. And yet also, he is God, incarnate 
in the flesh. So we see this in the creed that Jesus is crucified under Pontius Pilate. We have marked in our very confession of faith, this historical moment into which Jesus enters as the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. In all this though, the emphasis is still on the fact that when we see Jesus doing these things, we're witnessing God doing them in the flesh. So this raises a question that the church has dealt with throughout its history. How can we properly say this? And in particular, if we're saying that when we see Jesus acting, it's God acting in the flesh, what does this mean for Jesus's suffering and his death? What does it mean to say that Jesus, as God, the son incarnate in the flesh, dies on the cross? Well, you might have heard something like this as a way of reconciling this question. When we see Jesus on the cross, we see the human Jesus suffering, and then God raises Jesus from the dead on the third day as a way of protecting God from the suffering of the human condition. But I would submit to you that if we, if we go that route, we actually lose what's so important about our confession of Jesus as Lord. The point we've been tracing all along that God comes to us as a human, that God goes through the difficulties of human life. If we separate God out from the suffering of Jesus at its lowest point, at its greatest moment, we lose something crucial about the Christian faith. In some ways, I would suggest we actually lose the heart's of the gospel. What this does is it reduces the crucifixion to a kind of human sacrifice. That God steps back in the moment of deepest human suffering and allows a human to suffer for the sins of the world and then comes in victorious to raise Jesus from the dead. But what we need in reality is God himself to go to the depths of human suffering, to die on the cross for our sin, to cancel death by death, and to be raised again to defeat sin and death once and for all. And thankfully, this is the clear testimony of the scriptures if you read the gospels and the epistles and the New Testament literature closely. We see in 1 Corinthians 2.8, for example, that the Lord of glory is the one who is crucified. In Philippians 2, we see the account of Jesus, the divine son who comes to earth and goes all the way to death, even death on a cross to save his people. And that God then lifts him up and raises him above all creation so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And even as we just read the Gospels, we see there's one Jesus, one divine Son incarnate who goes through the entire scope of human life. The same person heals and forgives sins and teaches with the authority over the Mosaic law and does all of the things that you would expect God to do. And this same one 
is the one who weeps, the one who hungers and thirsts, the one who dies on the cross and goes to the depths of human suffering. Few people, I think, have put this better than uh, the beloved Martin Luther in this quote on the handout. And it's almost offensive in the way that Luther puts it, and that's why I included this quote, because it's, it's so sharply put. I'll just read a, a few lines of this. Luther writes, If it cannot be said that God died for us, but only a man, we are lost. But if God's death and a dead God lie in the balance, his side goes down and our side goes up like a light and empty scale. Yet he can also readily go up again or leap out of the scale. He goes on to use really elevated language. He could be called God's dying, God's martyrdom, God's blood, and God's death. Luther understands this as well as anyone. We need God himself to go to the depths of the cross for our salvation. Nothing else is sufficient. Nothing else can save us. So how is this possible then? How can God do this? How can God take on human flesh, mingle himself with the suffering and the evil of human life, and yet come out victorious and remain God all along? Well, I would suggest two things. This reveals God's character, and it reveals God's power. We see in in God's incarnation in Jesus Christ that He is powerful enough to remain God, to remain in power above sin, death, and the devil, and yet to also submit himself to human death on a cross. That God can do these things, and he chooses to do them for us. We see that God is powerful, not weak, actually. And secondly, we see that this is the character of God to do this, that God loves us so much that he would take on human flesh, that he would live a human life, that he'd be born and go through the dishonor of Jesus's life and the mortification of death, all in order to save us because he loves us. And the value of this is almost immediately clear to us, I think. There is no human suffering. There is no state of your life, even at the deepest moments of sorrow and pain, that God himself has not experienced, does not know from the inside, and has not conquered and defeated through his death and resurrection. This, when we say Emmanuel, at Christmas time and during Advent is what we mean. God is with us on the deepest level imaginable. There is no pain that you have experienced or will experience, no heartache, no frustration, no loss that God does not know in the deepest way. And it's in doing this 
in going to the depths that God accomplishes our salvation. And the church has talked about this in all different sorts of ways. We see this referenced and named in all different kinds of ways in the scriptures, that through Jesus's death and resurrection, God reveals to us, or Jesus rather reveals to us the true knowledge of who God is. That Jesus in his crucifixion and resurrection wins us victory over sin, death, and the devil. That in dying and being raised, Jesus makes a pure sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. That Jesus infuses us in his resurrection with divine life. That in going to the cross, Jesus recapitulates all of Israel's history in himself, ultimately being crowned king, we see in John's gospel in particular, as he's raised up on the cross. And that Jesus divinizes human nature, that he makes it possible for us to be with God and to be like God through his death and resurrection. So we've gotten to this question a little bit already, but to to move then into the very practical, what does this mean for our lives? Why does all of this matter? Beyond just the incredibly important point of, of knowing that God knows our suffering, what does this mean for how we live in our daily lives as Christians? Well, let me suggest to you that Christology, what we've just been talking about, this doctrine of Christ, who Jesus is, answering the question, who do you say that Jesus is? This is the central hub of the entire Christian life. Everything that we do as Christians relates back in some crucial way to who Jesus is. This short quote from from the theologian Karl Barth on the handout is worth referencing. He, He writes, tell me how it stands with your Christology or with what you believe about Jesus, and I shall tell you who you are. I think this is true for our lives as Christians. What we believe about Jesus really determines how we live and what we do in our daily lives. If we think about our worship, for example, Our worship and our sacramental life together are deeply Christocentric, deeply focused on Christ. We hear Christ speaking to us through the scriptures. We, this morning, as we're celebrating these baptisms, we are crucified with Christ and raised again to new life with him in baptism. And then we receive the body and blood of Christ as spiritual food in the sacraments every Sunday together. In our spirituality, in our piety, in our prayer, all of our prayer happens in the position of Christ as God's beloved son who hears the prayers of his adopted children. And we see this clearest perhaps in the Lord's prayer. The disciples say, teach us how to pray, Jesus. And he responds, our father, our father. Together with Jesus, we pray by the power of the Spirit. In our ethics, in our behaviors, in the way we live together in community, we model our lives on the perfect and sinless human life of Jesus Christ. The trite little bracelets, what would Jesus do, WWJD, right? These, uh, for all of their kind of simplicity and tiredness, perhaps, get at a crucial truth about the Christian life. 
that what it means to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God is to map our lives after the life of Jesus, to do as Jesus, God in the flesh, would do. In our church life, in our life together, the church is called in scripture, the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see that we are each members of this body with specific gifts to give and share with one another and with the world around us. And that as Christ's body, we are under Christ as our head. That's what it means to be the church, is to be Christ's body. And of course, in our study, all knowledge of God, which is intended to lead to love of God, all knowledge of God begins with the truest revelation of who God is in Jesus Christ. There is no area of our lives that is not touched and derived most fundamentally from the identity of who Jesus is. So as we close, thinking about living Jesus's life with him now, what does it mean to live resurrection life, to live in Christ now? Well, our course title this fall is Mapping the Christian Faith. And we've talked about the destination of our life in God. But if we're thinking about, again, how we get to that destination, Jesus is the way. Jesus gives us a map for our own lives. As we look at Jesus's life in the gospel, we see what it looks like to grow spiritually. We've been talking so much about spiritual growth here at Church of the Incarnation. There've been questions. What does spiritual growth look like? What does it look like in my own life? What's a good definition for spiritual growth? It's hard to come up with a better understanding or picture of what it looks like to live as a mature Christian than to look at the life of Jesus, how he loves his friends, how he gives sacrificially to those around him, his life with the poor, his life with those who are outcasts in society, his willingness to go to the places that no one else wants to go. These are a beautiful pattern for what it looks like. His prayer life, of course, his life with God in prayer. This really, put simply, is what we mean when we're talking about discipleship. It's following Jesus. This is kind of a tired word in some circles, I know, but putting this theological sort of heft behind the idea of discipleship, I think is so helpful that we're following Jesus and Jesus isn't just an exemplary human being. Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh. And so when we follow Jesus, we're already living a kind of divine life now. Jesus is made in the image of God or Jesus is the image of God and we are made in God's image. So to follow Jesus or to be made in the image of God is to live into the way that God has made us to be, to be his image, to live after the pattern of his son. What we're ultimately talking about then is growth, spiritual growth in Christ, living after the pattern of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us both a way into God's life by coming to us, and he models a way of life 
to us. He makes a way to God and he gives us a way of living. So I'll close with this from Ephesians 4, 15. Speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Close in prayer and then open for questions. God, we give you thanks for this time together. Thank you for each person here gathered. Lord, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help us grow up into the way of your Son, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for his life, for his death, for his resurrection, and for the fact that he makes a way into your life for us. Help us to live in that way each day, we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Any questions this morning? Practical, technical, you name it. Is it accurate to say that um, God the Father did not cause Jesus to be crucified, but he allowed it? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say yes, that is accurate to say. That God, God is oversees all of history, that God is, has providence, right, or control of all of history, and yet God does not cause or force Jesus to be crucified. We see throughout the Gospels that Jesus is obedient to the Father's will, but that Jesus freely gives himself up to the cross, that he's not forced to go to the cross or mandated to do so, um, but that it's of his own accord that he does so. Yeah, that's a great question. Does God the Father die on the cross and raise himself, like, in Jesus? I know that sounds kind of like a really basic question. but I... No, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it is, God the Father does not die on the cross. There have been some theologians in the 20th century who have written something to that effect, but there's no, there's no evidence in Scripture and in the tradition. It is God the Son, Jesus, who dies a human death, in particular. Yeah, but th that's an important distinction for sure to make that within, within the triune life that God sends the son, the father sends the son, and it's the son who's incarnate in Jesus Christ and who goes to the cross and not the father. Any other questions? What's the role of the Holy Spirit in spiritual growth? If Jesus, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit next week, actually. So Chris is anticipating a little bit of where we're going. But if Jesus gives us the pattern and makes a way for us into God's life and Jesus accomplishes our salvation in his death and resurrection, a way to think about the Holy Spirit's role is applying the work of Christ to our lives. So the Holy Spirit is the one who sort of takes what Jesus has done and accomplished and makes it a part of our lives as Christians as we experience and as we grow. So the Holy Spirit comes to be inside of us, to indwell us, and empowers us to live in the way that we've been talking about today, sort of after the pattern of Jesus's life. Um, we'll say much more about that next week. And I, I know there wasn't as much about the Holy Spirit this morning, but we're, we're going in that direction and the spirit, of course, is really intimately intertwined in all of Jesus's ministry that Jesus heals. We see by the power of the Holy Spirit. The spirit in the Gospels is really the spirit of Jesus Christ, um, who, who does this amazing, miraculous works that Jesus does by the power of his own spirit. And that's the spirit that's given to us as we attempt to, to live this life and sort of lives that life through us, actually. So we'll say more about that next week. All right, we have time for maybe one more short one. 
This might not fall under the short one category, but I think scripture is really clear that Jesus is the only path to God. But what about the people that never have the opportunity to hear the gospel? Yeah, that's a great question. Shelby asks, what about people who never have the opportunity to hear the gospel? What is, what is this, especially John 14, 6, that Jesus is the way to the Father? What does that mean for those people? Um, a short answer is that I, I think we can't be entirely sure. On the one hand, I think we have to say that everyone who goes, who, who makes it into God's life, so to speak, or goes to God, gets there through Jesus Christ, that there is no other way to the Father. On the other hand, I think we don't... Actually, someone asked a very similar question to, um, to Wes Hill when he was here teaching on Romans. And the way that he answered, I thought, was really, was really effective, which is simply to say that I don't think we can foreclose on God's grace or to say that we, we presume that we know the extent that, God's, that God will go to bring someone to him through Jesus Christ. So for those who don't have the chance to hear the gospel... Is there, is there a chance that they might come be brought into God's life through Jesus? I think that's possible. I think to foreclose on that is more than we can actually say. But I think what we do want and need to say is that anyone who comes to the Father comes through Jesus Christ. Um, and how broad and how wide God's grace is, I think, will surprise us on some level. Um, so I don't think we can say definitively on the one hand, but we can say definitively that everyone who comes to God comes through Jesus. Thank you for listening to The Way of Christ, A Path for Spiritual Growth. Join us next week for episode three titled, How Do We Get There? Part Two, The Spirit as a Guide in Scripture. Those in the Dallas area are invited to join us on Wednesday nights as we dive deeper into our weekly topics in a dynamic group discussion. This podcast is produced by Church of the Incarnation located in Dallas, Texas. Our sound editor is Robert Nash. Our theme song is Raise a Voice by Emery. Follow us on Instagram at IncarnationDFW or on Facebook at Church of the Incarnation. For more information on our church, please visit our website at www.incarnation.org. Thank you for listening.